Hello and welcome to another Gaming Moguls podcast, the only gaming podcast where you very unashamedly get sitters for your Wednesday night because, hey, it's game night. I'm your host for this evening, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jake Klopfenstein. Jake, what's new tonight? Nothing. I didn't know you got uh, had to get a sitter. I assumed your wife was in town this week. Well, she is, but she actually had to do a little work trip to Atlanta last night. So um, I ended up having to get somebody to pinch hit. And fortunately, my father-in-law loves coming over and hanging out with his grandkids. So that worked out perfectly. Lucky duck. Well, we were happy to have you at game night. Would have been lacking without you. It was an awesome night. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful night of games. We actually haven't had that great of a night of games in a while, but we did have the issue we always have where we are at five players the entire night, a.k.a. the worst player count for most games. I think I am actually going to start just specifically buying games that are awesome at five, and that's just going to be my wish list going forward. Right. It just seems like we always run into something and the depth to which we have games that play well at five is starting to get lower and lower. Like I always play Concordia at five because it plays pretty well at five and I'm kind of bored with it at five. I want to try some of the different maps I've had. But anywho, why don't we talk about some of these games that we played this week? Sounds great. This past weekend was actually my fiance's bachelorette party. So I went up north went up to the cabin with a couple of cousins and just kind of had a nice solitary weekend. We had planned to do like play basketball and be outside and stuff, but the weather was not very compliant there. It was 41 Fahrenheit and raining and super windy the entire weekend, but that worked out well to play a whole bunch of games. That's honestly my favorite weather to be at a cabin at, especially for a game weekend, because, you know, you can sit inside all comfy underneath a blankie and have a warm drink and sit by the fire and just play games all weekend long and not feel the least bit bad about it. Absolutely. It was actually the worst weather I think I've ever seen in my cabin. The waves were as tall as the dock. It was kind of spooky. Oh, crazy. Well, that's a big lake. Right. It's a big one. And it we're, we're on the west side and it seemed like everything was pushing from the east. So it was big, big waves. But what was awesome about the weather is we got to play a whole bunch of games and a bunch of games that we've been talking a lot about on the podcast. So as I said in the last couple of episodes, I am obsessed with the card game Teach You by Urs Hostetler and Rio Grande Games. And I have started a personal quest to teach this game to my family. So I was with my family. I was at the cabin. Perfect place for to teach it. However, I had a little bit of an issue with it. I forgot how deep strategically this game is. And I kept on doing that thing that I don't normally like to do where I teach the person that I'm teaching the game, like the strategy to it. And that just didn't really feel that good. I know you have some history teaching your family that. Did it take some time to have them pick up everything or what did you do? Yeah, I did end up walking them through a round or two, just sort of showing them what the appropriate thing to do was. There are definitely some beginner mistakes in that game, such as playing a pair of aces or getting stuck with the dog at the end of a hand or something like that that you just can't get rid of. And that's something that I don't know that you ever get over. It's so situational that unless you actually play a few rounds, I think it might take that to learn that. Did you read my mind? That's literally what happened. So we were at the table. Yeah. So we're at the table and I taught my uncle this and he's super good at card games. He loves cribbage. He plays a lot of up and down the river. He's a, he's a shark. He's one of the top players. And so I teach him this game. He's, he's, he's on, he's on board. We're all liking it. And we get to a point where it's partners and he's doing really well. I think one of my, me or my partner called teach you, and he's trying to undo that and make sure that we lose a hundred points. And so he's down to the bottom and he has one card and he's like, well, I think I'm in a weird position right now. I'm like, oh, I thought he just had like a three or something. And then like towards halfway through, he's like, I'm like, there's been a few opportunities for him to play a low singleton card because his partner keeps on setting him up for it and I can't block it or something. 
And turns out he had the dog and he was just sitting on it. I'm like, oh no, you can't do that. So I just, we decided, you know what? Let's throw in all of our cards, just redeal. And you guys got the, we didn't get the teacher. We'll lose hundred points. And it kind of got a little disappointing because you're playing to that goal and it got a little competitive, not in a bad way or anything, but we both wanted to win. It was making the game better, you know? And it just kind of took the wind out of our sails there. Yeah. And just as a background, the dog and teach you is the lowest possible card and its only utility is to pass the lead to your partner. That's it. And so you can't ever play it. (laughs) Right. Unless you have the lead. That's the only time you can play it. But if that's the only card you have, unless the person to your left goes out, you're never getting the lead. Right. And what teach you means is if you're the first person to get out of all your cards, it's a ladder trick taking game and you're trying to play all your cards. So if you call teach you, you're gambling that you're going to be the first person to get out and play all your cards. And so he was trying to foil me getting out first and playing all my cards. But the only card he had left was a card that he could not lead or he couldn't play no matter what he did. He can only lead it. So that was a little bit disappointing, but I still think he liked it. And I think the best way to teach teach you from now on is actually I'm going to run a table. I'm going to be like the GM for it, but not actually play. I'm going to be run a table of four newbies and just kind of see all of their skills at the game and have them all kind of learn at the same time. I think that'll work a little bit better. Yeah, no, I think that's probably the way to do it or in to coach each person on their possible selections and sort of help them talk through. Or maybe you just play one hand as just a warm up before you actually start keeping score. That's maybe the way to do it. We did the hand fully open and did everything, but maybe we should have done it a little longer, hit it a couple more times. It's just there's a lot to remember. Okay, so the fives, the tens and the king score. And then, oh, there's all these special cards. Which one's which? I think also a small little sheet that says everything would be helpful, too. But Once you get past the little bit of growing pains in Tichu, there is a beautiful world beyond it once you internalize that rule. So I think we're going to get it played a lot. Tichu. It's great. Also at the cabin this weekend, I was able to teach the same group of people Arboretum, which is a game that we have talked about at length. We actually gave it a 1C on the mogul scale. It's very simple. I think I speak for you when I say it's probably our darling of thinky small box games at the moment. Oh, beyond our darling. I'm enamored with this game. I'm such a fan. I've actually looked into some of the previous trying to get a copy of the previous Z-Man edition just so I can be a hipster and have something that nobody else does. <laughs> yeah, complete waste of time. Getting there before it was cool. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It, but I do have a little bit of a sour spot on the game. So I've taught this game a few times. I think you've actually been present for some of my teaches. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I've done a pretty good job now. I can usually hit down the point. I explain scoring. I hit it two or three times because that's really the game. And so we get towards the end of a three-player game where everybody's playing and drawing all this stuff and we end up scoring it. And my uncle didn't really process how it scored. And I hit the point three or four times. So maybe I should have played like a half sized game to start. And then you can see everything on how you score, maybe play five, six cards and then show at that point in time, how you score. It just got to the point where it's like, Oh, I didn't get that. Oh, I didn't get that. He kept on feeding the person to his left. His drop pile was completely, or his discard pile, pardon me, was completely empty at the end of the game. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. So, Hmm. yeah, yeah, that's it's still a wonderful game. I don't know if I'd give it a full one on the mogul scale, maybe like a one and a half or a one plus or something. We'll figure out the level of granularity. I think we just get so accustomed to playing with gamers. But was it the rules that he was struggling with or was it the strategy rules? 
Okay. Well, I yeah, guess it's the yeah. strategy reflected in the rules. He, I hit the point so many times, and he's really smart at games. Maybe it's just a little weird, and maybe it's another point of playing with more casual game players versus casual gamers. Maybe there's a distinction there, mm. but it, he kept on not knowing that what he had in his hand is what he wanted and the balancing of all that. Right, and that is a little bit of a tweaky, unusual thing. Right, and it is weird. I mean, it takes a little bit. So that was the only downside. Still, I'm in love with the game Arboretum, but didn't have the best experience teaching it to kind of a new player. So it makes me a little bit more apprehensive to bring it around to not as experienced gamer. Cause every time we've taught it to like gamers, like at our Wednesday night thing, they pick it up fast as it comes. I would still unashamedly recommend that for virtually any crowd of people. Absolutely. Just thought I should report if it didn't go well, but he still did like the game and they actually ended up playing a two player game after I'd left to go fix dinner. So they are still fans. It just took a little bit longer than I would have liked. I know you played some sweet games this weekend. You ended up texting me photos about it. I did. And I had the opposite teaching experience where I taught a game twice that should have been more difficult. And both times, both people just absolutely grasped a hold of it and ran with it with very little difficulty. In fact, faster than I grasped it the first time I played it. I'm talking about our current favorite game, Leaving Earth by Joseph Fatula and the Luminaris Group. This is something that we ranked as a 3D. So very thinky. There's a fair amount of rules. And we've now played it several times. And the time came up like it came out at our last Wednesday group that J-Mac had never played this one. And right. We both looked at him like, what? How? We have to (laughs) fix this. (laughs) I know. So as it turned out, I was at J-Mac's house Friday night getting our Gen Con picks together because both of us are going to Gen Con here in August. Shout me a line if you're going. Love to meet up with you if we're around. We're picking out our stuff. And afterwards, I said, hey, cool. I will teach you Leaving Earth afterwards because it's amazing at two players. So I'll bring it along. We'll get it going. John picked it up really, really quickly. And I sort of started realizing that it actually is rules wise pretty elegant. All the requirements are printed in very obvious places. And if you want to go deep into the math on how it all works, it can be complex, but you can just use a little lookup table there and that's just as easy. So I'd still keep it at a 3D rating, but it actually played pretty simple and both people I taught it to got it almost instantly. The best one though was my son, a young 12-year-old William has been pestering me for a long time to teach him this game because he knows how much I love it and massive fan of space. So this is something that's right over the plate for him and I kind of went, well, okay, it's a pretty challenging game, but sure, why not? He's a smart kid. So gave him the rules and off we went. And, you know, we sort of walked a little bit open face through the first uh, couple of missions with just getting a probe up into low Earth orbit and up into Earth orbit and so forth. And then he kind of stops, grabs one little score sheets, hides it behind something, furiously scribbling away. He pops up and just goes, aha, I've got a rocket cocktail figured out on how I'm getting to Mars. That's all it takes. It takes like two minutes. (laughs) I kind of went, sure you do. But let me see. <laughs> Look right. over and check his math and the kid had it perfectly figured out. I mean, he, he knew exactly. He worked backwards about the weight he had to carry each step of the way. Had a plan on how he was going to stage everything up there and how long it was. He knew exactly how many years it was going to take if testing went well and how long it would do if it wouldn't. I could not believe how well he had it figured out. Well, that's awesome. And that is the thing about leaving Earth. I remember teaching it to you and it was the first teach and I hadn't played it. I dick move stuff around as a as a solo game, but I haven't really played the game. So I teach it to you and I'm like, you had a little bit of a tough time figuring out the math. And maybe that was because I didn't walk you through it. But if you read it and it clicks, it's actually a very simple game once you get the working backwards math to click. 
Right. And if you can just see that, I wonder if it's like almost like that new way they're teaching kids to do math now. Oh, that's an interesting Where point. Once you can figure out it's super formulaic and it just made sense. Because when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. I just don't think I conveyed it to you in a good way. It wasn't that you didn't convey it to me in a good way. It was the blind leading the blind. Neither of us had played it before. So we were figuring it out in real time. Right. Fair. And it's like, OK, well, I understand that this is why we're doing it, but I need to actually see it with the confidence of knowing right. how it actually works. Right. Right. Whereas I was able to very specifically say, here's how you do this, this, this and this. One thing I would definitely say that helped him along was he could do it by doing the math on this weight times this difficulty and carrying that up, blah, 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 blah. What was great for him was the back of the rocket card. You know, on the rocket card, it has difficulty for a Soyuz can, he can carry, carry this this, mu- this amount. And he instinctively got that. And it was no problem figuring it out from there. And then he just realized he had to kind of progressively add up the weights as he was dropping stages. And once he had that concept down, he was able to figure everything out. Absolutely. Great game. I unfortunately killed Yuri Gagarin. Sorry, Yuri. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I two, no. I had two cards. I knew one was a success, and we were actually racing for the first man in Earth orbit uh, achievement. And I had to jump on him, and I was pretty sure my reentry tech was solid. And nope, there was a major failure in there that I apparently hadn't drawn multiple times. And kabooey. Poor Yuri. Oh, no, Yuri. Poor Yuri. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're going to be able to play this with the family. I think that's the perfect setting for it. Almost a situation where you can always leave it set up and just kind of come to it when you want to as a group. The setup on this game is pretty annoying. Oh, it's not so bad anymore. Yeah, Mark was nice enough to laser cut some insert plans that we found on BGG. And we ended up getting a box printed from, was it Board Games Maker Co.? Or... Yes, it was BoardGamesMaker.com. We we had the box printed. So if you own a copy of this, and especially if you have a copy of this and the expansion, go to BoardGameGeek and find a way to get that stuff printed and laser cut because it is so nice to be able to organize all your stuff in one printed box. It looks like a totally professional production right now. And man, it makes uh, carrying the game around just a thrill. Absolutely. We should we'll post a picture of it on our Instagram with a little link and post it on our Twitter as well. So you can see it all. But it is awesome. It's makes setup and tear down so much easier. For sure. So that's Leaving Earth by Joseph Fatula and the Luminaris Group. Now we're on to the games we played last night. We were lucky enough to have five players, which was awesome. So we had to reach for some games that played five players. Um, <laughs> Here we go again. Oh, by the way, right. by the way, once again, we had to make a last minute audible on this one because You and I had planned out some great four-player games for the night, and Cousin Tyler in the middle of the afternoon says, hey, I'm coming too, making it five. So we had to do a little triage on which games we were bringing along, and god dang it, Feast for Odin Norwegians, once again, still the bridesmaid. Never the bride. Next week, Mark, you will get it played at some point in time, because I know people want to. And I think the other thing, too, is I want to play it, so it's even adding another layer of like, well... If we have enough for two tables, then Jake can't be running that second table. So maybe somebody else has got to run something. We will find it and we will play it. We will find a time for it. But for sure. But last night, we actually were able to wrap up the evening with a game of Ethnos by Paolo Mori and Simon. This is a fun little game. I equate it as Ticket to Ride Plus, or I think I called it Ticket to Ride for Gamers last night. I call it Ticket to Ride in a loincloth. <laughs> that makes sense because we were all wearing loincloths last night. That's normally what we were to public spaces. It's a totally normal dress. Or, or everybody on the cards is. Oh, there it is. That's the difference. So, what you're doing in Ethnos is you're different war bands trying to take over Slovakia. The map looks just like Slovakia. There's six regions in it, and there are cards. There's six different races of cards. These are fantasy races. So, we're talking like wizards and halflings and skeletons. 
and orcs and all that fun stuff. And so what you do to set up the games, you take six of those different races of the available 12, shuffle them up to make a deck, and on your turn, you're able to draw a card or you can play your cards. And when you play some cards, depending on who you made the warband's leader, you get to do some special powers. And if you play down a number of cards higher than the number of discs that you currently have in the same colored region as the warband guy leader, you can put down a disc there. So then at the very end, you score for your sets that you've made, and then you also score for each region three times. And you just play till the deck runs out once, and then, or technically till you draw three dragons, and you do that three times. But it was awesome. I forgot how much I liked this game. We went through a tear of it last summer, I believe, and it was played maybe a little bit too much, but it rested on the shelf for a bit, and we brought it back out and made me remember all I liked about this game. What do you think, Mark? Oh, a couple of thoughts. Um, yeah, I had fun. I like this game a lot. And even though it is a area control, there's there's kind of a light dudes on the map factor there. Um, it, it's light but they enough, don't take you. You, can, you never take discs no, out. You never 100%. kill them. It's, it's more or less just how much do you care about a region? Yep, 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 yep. So that, that doesn't push my buttons on dudes on a map game. So good to go there. I'm fine with area control generally. I... Don't know what was up on Wednesday night, but I was off, man. I was like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're paying attention, but like, oh, I was very aware. I finished last in two of the games and like should have been last in the third game. Don't know what the deal was. I had a fine day. Everything was on the up and up. And I don't know. I don't feel like I was playing bad in Ethnos. Like literally, I just had just absolute just garbage cards just constantly. There was, I don't know. And maybe that was just planning. I, I'm not sure. Right. Well, it was you and another player, too. We had a player get to only be at nine victory points or glory points at the end of the second era, which is incredibly, incredibly low for like reference. I think my score was 92 at the very end. So they were not on track to be doing the best. But he ended up scoring a whole bunch of points in the last round and kicked you off. And I didn't because I had nothing. And then we both still had the same issue about this game. So this game is really fun. It's really fast because all you do on your turn is you draw a card or play a card. There's not that wide of a decision space. But when you draw cards, you have an option to draw from the deck blindly or you have an option to draw from all the face up cards. But there's not always a set amount of these face up cards. And once they're gone, they're gone and they get more cards added into them when people play from their hand. Then you put the rest of the remainder of your hand into the market. The issue is it always happens in every single game of this game, or of Ethnos, pardon me, where we will not have any cards in the market and nobody wants to play their cards yet. So we just go around two or three times, everybody drawing one card. And it's like, that's okay. Maybe that's a bad decision because you should play and then do something else. And I'm sure some someone who's smarter than me can figure out why that's a bad decision. But it always happens. And it just kind of feels like the game is not broken, but it seems like that maybe should have been factored out of it. I really think you could house rule this one so that if the market ever ends up empty, you just deal out five off the top just to put out there. I can't see how that would break the game. And honestly, I think it would make the game better because you wouldn't be just everybody blindly drawing for four trips around the table. I, I don't know if that helped because then it's going to do the same thing where no one's going to want to grab the last card from the market because then they're going to populate four new cards or something for the next person. Maybe it's like they're, the market must always have three cards or something along those lines. But yeah, it just got to a point where you're like, don't really have a lot of decisions. You're just drawing cards and you're either drawing a card or you're going to play some cards and maybe your hand's just garbage and you won't do anything with it. And all you're going to do is give a bunch of cards to the market and help out other people. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but still a good game. Still a big fan of it. I, I, I still like it. I think, it's a, I think it's a great game. And it plays a lot like Ticket to Ride. It just is a little bit above it. 
and short play. Um, once again, though, we were butting up against the kickout time and we were, <laughs> we were kicked. We were strongly suggested to leave. Get out of here. I suggested that maybe we forget how to speak English and I'll pretend that we can't understand them and <laughs> just keep on Sorry. and finish our game. But it says midnight, it says midnight online. I promise. Earlier that night, I pulled another old favorite out. I pulled out Millennium Blades. Millennium Blades is a game that is a riff on the collectible card game universe and the whole lifestyle around it, poking fun at a lot of the tropes around that style of gaming and the people that play them. Weirdly, the most analytical person in our group is the biggest fan of this game of all, and Steven's been requesting this for weeks for me to bring this along and bring it out. So, being that we had five... Millennium Blades plays five, so away we go. I brought it with and set her up. Anybody that's played Millennium Blades will empathize with the fact that it is a stone-cold bugger to get set up and tore down because you have to mix together a bunch of different decks into a really tall stack and then separate them back out afterwards. So That's actually a big reason I traded it with you. This was originally my game, and I gave it to you because I just wasn't getting it played enough because it was so annoying to set up and tear down. I even had an insert for it, too. It was just still so annoying. The way I finally combated that is I put together a store deck. That's the big giant deck you have to shuffle together. And I just leave it set up so that we can pull it out and play without having to go through and build that thing. The idea being that periodically I'll rotate some stuff in and out of there to keep it fresh. But that, boy, I think that probably saved 20 minutes on setup and teardown just by itself. Easily. Easily. Quick rules explanation for the people that hadn't played before. And away we went and... I got off to a bad start with taking the uh, the dark colored deck that deals all with flipping cards. And that's not the strongest deck in the world compared to some of the other ones. <laughs> and it sort of acts as spoiler decks for some of the other colors that started decks in there. But basically, I got really far behind and just couldn't draw enough stuff later on to find my way out of that mess. And just the stuff I was dealt wasn't good. And I don't know. So once again, I was fighting for last place the whole time. Yeah, um, this game's awesome. So for people that haven't heard much about it, we have talked about it in the podcast before, so I won't explain too much here. But what you're doing is you're doing every single aspect of a collectible card game universe. You're both playing in tournaments, and those are the rounds where you're actually going to play the game. And then the other half is a timed section where you're buying and selling and trading and crafting all these different cards in real time with cash and all this stuff. And the actual money in it is physical wadded up wads of cash, which is hilarious. And it's really fun because it balances a fun striking between like a real time chaotic game and kind of a somewhat thinky little card playing game. All you do on the tournaments and to actually play the game is you just put down one card a turn. But all those cards have special abilities and they all can play off each other and you can really build a fun little deck. The one downside with this game, though, is there is not as many rules clarifications as I think you'd like on a game of this style. No, no. We played two rounds of it only where you're actually building the decks. No, we played one, pardon me, because because the other person came that we were going to end up switching over to a different game at that point in time came. And so we wrapped it up a little early. And I think we tried to count the number of like questions that we had at the end. And it was a lot, you know, and this is not just like, what does blast off mean? Like, well, how does this card interact with this is your tableau flipped at this point in time you know all these different like very specific rules that are not necessarily addressed in the rule book yeah and if you look at like the you know the rule clarifications and judges ruling for magic it's encyclopedia britannica thick and millennium blades has that it's just a bgg thread and i kept on searching it and i couldn't 
control F on my phone. So it was a little annoying to get all those as we were oh. playing, try to try to figure that out for you. So they, they have it. It's all out there and we shouldn't complain about that. But it just kind of put a little sour spot on the game because you just really want to dive into the whole trading and what do you need? Well, why did you want that? And all this thing that's really fun in the game. But we kept on being like, well, Jake, what does this card do? And keep, people kept on asking me. I think it's because you were a little space cadet yesterday. So, yep. It's all good, though. I wasn't finding it. I don't know why I couldn't. <laughs> I wasn't lining up and it seemed like none of the cards fit together. And really, the game is in the deck building, right? You know, it's yes, right. there are choices to be made on what card you play when. But it's getting the decks together and putting those together is where the game is won and lost. And uh, yeah, I either wasn't getting the stuff or wasn't seeing it that day. Don't know. Right. Right. And if you like real time games that are a little stressful and also like the CCG style atmosphere of the, the entire the entire life. And when I get a tongue in cheek replication of that, Millennium Blades is a really fun game for that. I have had awesome experiences pulling out this game, whether it be at conventions or everything along those lines. So, Mark, what would you give Millennium Blades on the mogul scale? I would give Millennium Blades a pretty solid three C. I mean, there is, you know, you could almost make an argument for this being a four C because of the fact there. There's not a lot of rules in the core game, but there's a lot of exceptions. Yeah. And you kind of have to like assume how things are going to work in conjunction with each other. Like which one supersedes another rule? Does a rule on a card supersede a rule on an accessory? I don't know. Yes, exactly. So difficulty levels definitely see, but I think, you know, you could make an argument of that being either a three or a four. I think part of the problem actually with Millennium Blades, that might have actually been the wrong choice for me. I don't I wasn't really feeling it. And Steven really wanted to play it. I, I think I would have rather played one of the other choices we had that night being Power Grid or Scythe or I forget whatever else we had, but Eclipse. Eclipse. Yeah, I think that's what I was more into that night. And so I kind of wasn't feeling the the real time chaos of it. So I wasn't finding the decks. And I think that just put me off on a strange tone for the entire evening. Yeah, because next into the next game that we played, you definitely carried a little bit of confusion into this one. Right after Millennium Blades, our good friend Brent showed up. We played The Great Zimbabwe by Joran Druman and Joris Rasinga from Splatter Spellin. And you didn't quite get off on the best foot with this game because you've played it before this, right? No, I've never played it before. Oh, OK. I, I apologize. I, I was under the impression you did. That was the root of the problem right there is that. I very quickly got the impression that everybody else at the table had either played it or had read the rules before they got there. So there was stuff getting glossed over in the rules explanation pretty hard. I'm not faulting your explanation of the rules, but there was stuff that I it felt like I skipped from chapter two to chapter six somewhere there. I'm like, well, wait, who who the hell is that character? Dennis hadn't read the rules before. Yeah, he had. Yeah. No. Oh, he did? Yeah, he re- he had read the rules based on you talking about earlier in the day. He had previewed it. So Never mind. I knew nothing about it. Let's give a quick background here. So The Great Zimbabwe, what you're doing is it is a it is a game where you're African tribes and what you are doing is trying to get your victory points up to your victory requirement level, which is a cool mechanism, which I'll touch on in a bit. But how you're doing this is by building different monuments And you do this by buying different crafted goods from different craftsmen. So on your turn, you get to do some stuff and then you get either increase your your level of your monuments where you're actually going to buy things from craftsmen that people have played. Or you can build some craftsmen and put craftsmen that exist on the board or you can put down some new monuments. But the main crux of the game is actually going to visit these different craftsmen. 
and to visit these craftsmen to raise your monuments, you need to buy a certain number of different goods depending on what level you are trying to get to at the next thing. So if you're trying to raise from a level one to a level two, you need to visit one craftsman. If you're, if you're trying to go from two to three, you have to get two. And that's the main logistics part of the game because the craftsman needs to source raw materials and they need to bring the raw good to you or the finished good to you, pardon me, to your actual monument. And it's weird because there's not that much rules in this game, but it opens up and becomes a lot deeper than you expect very quickly. The other really cool part about this game is you get victory points for building monuments like every other game that we've ever played that are Euro style games. But what's cool about this game is you can get these things that are either gods or specialists or some technology cards have this as well, where they raise your requirement to win the game by a certain amount. So everybody starts at 20. But if you take a god that'll make you get some cool special power, it'll bump your victory point requirement up to 26 or something along those lines. And so your combination of game-breaking powers plus all that stuff should accelerate you to get to that point, but you have to properly use your special abilities to be able to win the game. So I haven't asked you yet what you thought of it because we, we sometimes like to keep the podcast recordings a little fresh, and I'm excited to hear your take on it here. I think that I'm going to drink a bit of my own Kool-Aid here first. I like heavy games. I like teaching heavy games. I like playing heavy games. And not everybody in my sphere likes the same thing. And I have a number of stories, including you, probably the first time we played Lisboa, where you played it through once and you kind of went, eh, I didn't really get it. I didn't really feel it. And every time I'd say pretty much exactly the same thing, I'd say, hold, hold on, hold on. Don't judge it till after the second or third play, because the first play really is about just seeing how the mechanism works. Run around, yank levers, try a bunch of stuff. You're going to do crappy. You're not going to get it the second time. Start thinking about that kind of stuff. And that's what I really preach on heavyweight games is that's the right way to approach them. And I need to drink my own Kool-Aid on this one and realize that what I was doing was running around yanking levers and seeing how it worked and getting a better understanding of the game and not getting up in my headspace about actually making smart choices or good choices. So what's weird about the Great Zimbabwe is it is, I'd say, a pretty easy rules weight game. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree. There is not a ton of rules there. The weird thing is, though, is the levers. I wouldn't even describe them as levers as in a traditional board game sense. What you're actually doing in the game and what agency you have is so different than like kind of other games where you have like a certain spot you might take or a certain power or something along those lines that'll do something efficient for you. You have to really think of this in like a spatial way and really capitalize on that. So I was able to win this game. And the reason why was because I was a bottom feeder. I didn't need a lot of money because people had priced their things so low. And then the people who had a bunch of money weren't really spending it on anything or raising the prices and capitalizing on that. The other thing is we were playing in a five-player map, so all the craftsmen were built really close to everybody. It was really easy for me to get all the goods I needed to be able to raise my monuments up to higher levels. And I was able to bottom feed, and I don't think people were able to realize that they were allowing me and you to bottom feed. We were both kind of doing the same strategy there. And I think they couldn't quite grasp that they needed to change that situation. So me and you couldn't do what we were doing. It felt kind of like a hollow victory. Yeah. And I actually didn't do that bad in the game once I got in there. Oh, yeah. You're one or two turns away from winning. Right. The challenge I think I had was, is that I've realized that I really need to start with the end in mind when I learn a game. I need to know the whys before I know the what's. 
So as you're going through the what's, you're like, well, you, you can build a monument, you can do this and you can get a craftsman and you can recruit a god and all that made perfect sense. And the network aspects of this, this many jumps and so forth. But I didn't really understand why I was doing that. What I probably needed, and maybe you did this and I missed it, I really needed to go back and just go, okay, the only way to get victory points is by building monuments. That's it. Functionally, yes. There are two or three things that can give you other victory points. Right. To get monuments, you need different resources. To get resources, you do da-da-da-da-da-da, rather than just walking through the turn structure, because it like had no context to me as you were walking through the turn structure. Well, it was funny because everybody hit that point right when you asked. You're like, well, why am I doing this? And we all confidently said, to build monuments. <laughs> it was like we all kept on answering questions. But I think that may have been because they read the rules, because I did hit it. I said at the beginning, okay, monuments are things that are worth victory points. Here's how you're supposed to get. But you bring up a good point. If you don't know what you're doing and why... And this game, the hubs in this game and the whole logistics of how you get everything everywhere is a little confusing. You can get lost in the weeds and not see the game for what it is. Yeah. And I think it's super important in this game, too, because of the fact that there are relatively few rules relative to the strategy. If you walk into that not knowing what you're trying to do, you're really going to be pretty lost in what to do because there's not very many choices to make. And that almost is a tyranny in of itself because you're looking at these few choices thinking, well, this ought to be easy, but I really don't know what to do because I don't know where the finish line is. I actually might argue with you that there's not few choices. I think there's a lot of choices. There's probably let, too let me re- many choices. Let me rephrase that. There's few actions. There's there a is. zillion choices. There it is, yeah. 100%. No, I agree with you completely. I think this is my least favorite of the splatter games that I've played so far. Between I've played all of the big five besides Roads and Boats. So Indonesia, Food Chain Magnet, and Antiquity. Of those, including Great Zimbabwe, this one's my least favorite, but it still is a very good game for me. And I keep on saying while I'm playing with people is I understand this game is really smart, but I don't know if I'm smart enough for it. And so once we finished the game, we kind of talked in a circle about all the things maybe we should have done to or they should have done to block me from winning. And it was interesting hearing everybody kind of bounce the ideas on that after they had played Realize It. But it's a little fragile because uh, people weren't blocking me enough so I was able to win. So I, I don't know. I've, I've, I have some mixed feelings on this game and I'm excited to actually play it with the group. The plan is to play it again next week and actually play with the group that are starting to understand this game and we can start blocking each other and realizing all of the available options that we have to get in each other's way. So wrapping it up, I didn't love it, but it was because I, I don't know that it was the game's fault that I didn't love it. Right. And I do believe that now that I understand it better, I need to give it another whirl. I don't know that I want to give it another world right again next week, right. but I probably should while it's still fresh. So I, I don't know. It was fine. I also am starting to realize that maybe I don't love this thing that Splatter does with this. They, they sort of do this heat map kind of thing. Like I mean, the food chain magnet has the exact same deal where it's this heat map of where you can deliver to and finding these routes around there and controlling this area. And I, I don't know how better to describe it. And I struggled with that also. Yeah, I love the logistics in these games. I mean, I've talked about splatter games pretty at length. I absolutely love them. And I like how usually rules light they are compared to the depth and strategy. The Great Zimbabwe one is hard and the hubs thing. I've played it enough where I can verbalize it well, but it's a little confusing on, okay, so now that you have an upgraded resource, now I have to use, okay, well, it needs a base good and it needs another good. It's just, 
it's confusing to know everything that's going on about it. But I still really like the game and I'm hoping that we can play it again next week because I think it's a winner. It's definitely top yep. quarter of my games that I like, but it's definitely not a top 10 for me. Well, and certainly I can say with all authority that many of my favorite games are games that I didn't fully understand in the first playthrough, and it took subsequent plays for the hook to set. I mean, 18xx being chief in that pile. Oh, where after the first time, I kind of like, mm, I don't know that I really understood that, and I don't know that I really enjoyed it, but it was a thing. After the second time of playing it, I went, got it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Check, this is awesome. Yeah, and so maybe we'll see the actual game for what it is when we play it again sometime soon. We'll keep you posted. It is a style of game, and it is a you know branch of gaming that I definitely, definitely tend to enjoy. So I think I just need to drink my own Kool-Aid and give her another whirl so that I once I understand it better. Absolutely. That was The Great Zimbabwe by Splatter Spellin. As a mogul scale, I think I'd give this one a 3D. Would you concur? I think that's right on target. Yep. The next thing that we're going to talk about in this podcast is kind of something that we're really, really excited about. And we actually have a little bit of background into. A couple of months ago, we were chatting on the internet with some friends. And this was right during the time where I kept on saying on the podcast, I'm going to get better at Board Game Geek. I need to use it. Board Game Geek is kind of like Excel to me, Excel spreadsheets where pretty much Excel can do everything that I want it to. I'm assuming everything at BoardGameGeek can kind of do everything I want to with a board game. And so one issue that we constantly have is I don't have a lot of visibility to my friends' collections. And I don't get a really see in a convenient way the kind of Wednesday game groups functionality and, and what they have, just because Board Game Geek doesn't really do that. So I asked the group, is there anything that does that? And they were like, um, you can kind of do it through Board Game Geek, maybe make like a geek group and then everybody can join that. And then you can post your collections on there. That doesn't seem convenient. So it's like, OK, that's lame. Dang, BGG, you should be able to do everything I want you to. So then another member in the group reached out and said, I've been building something to try to kind of alleviate these things and make Board Game Geek's database a little bit more user friendly. So then a couple of months go by and then we end up seeing it. And he made the most wonderful tool. Actually, that's not true. A couple of days oh, went yeah. by. Yeah, not even a couple of <laughs> months. Oh, my God. Yeah, he, he made it in like a day. Right. We saw the first release literally within a day. It was it was incredible. And so what we're talking about is the geek group tool made by our friend Phil Cardi. And he actually posted it recently on Reddit board games and all that stuff. Um, so, Mark, why don't you tell a little bit about all these awesome features in this service app thing? What this really is, is this is a collection aggregator and statistics tool based around collections of BGG users. Theoretically, like you have a board game group and it's a way to see everybody's collection at once inside that group and get some interesting analytics around it. You can just use it for your collection, too, and it'll pull analytics for just you as well. Correct. I can create a login on there, which this tool is free, by the way, and it can be found at geekgroup.app. And all you have to do is put in your board game geek username, create a password and you're in and you can join games if you know or you can join groups if you know the name of the group and become part of that. And what it does is you can see all of the things you see in your collection view inside board game geek in a much prettier fashion. But it starts doing some interesting metrics like, you know, what's your score on a game versus board game geeks score on a game and gives you some interesting filtering things, color codes like what player count a uh, game is best at playing. And just lots of handy ways to browse your collection. Where it starts really getting powerful, though, is once you can go through and join a group and see insights about that group. So, for example, everybody in our little Wednesday night group has been put into this group. And we can now look across everybody in that group's collection and see what games they have. We can see how many people own that particular game. We can see 
how many copies are there. We can see, you know, the little icons of people next to who owns it. And we can see what we rated a game. We can see what our group rated a game. And you can see it versus what Board Game Geek rated a game. So you can now start to draw some conclusions about, wow, our group thinks this game's a lot better than Board Game Geek in general does. Or likewise, too, boy, our group really hates this game. Right. So. Like I'm looking, for example, at 13 days, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I rated it an eight. Our group averages it as 6.5 <laughs> and uh, board BGG has it 7.4. Jake, I think you torpedoed that one. I'm hovering over it and I see you gave it a five. I did. I most certainly did. But what's also cool about this is you can filter depending on pretty much any parameter you want it to be. So if we do something along the lines of, oh, just like last night, why don't we make sure it'll play recommended at five and best at five? Mm -hmm. Let's do that. And now we can see all of the games that we th that the community and Board Game Geek thinks are best at five and sort those even by the ones that we wanted. So the least favorite game of five of ours is Mag Blast, which we talked about a couple episodes previous. But and it goes all the way to all these other things. <laughs> right. So like so. Power Grid is something that everybody really likes. We could have played that plays five really well and all those different things. It's a really wonderful tool where this stuff really gets mind blowing is when you go into the insights tab on that one and start looking at group insights and you start doing insights on ratings. Now, suddenly you get things like um, disparities, like which things have the largest rating disparity between your group and BGG. You can also do this on yourself, not just the group. Like, for example, our group rates Cards Against Humanity a four on average, and BGG has it at six. We rate Catan at 5.7. BGG has it at 7.2. On the flip side, we've got Glory to Rome at nine, and BGG has it at 7.5. So we also overrate Trick of the Rails. We've got it at eight, and BGG has it at 6.7, which <laughs> is wrong. I don't know how else to put that. You can see a nice little graphical map on distribution of the ratings of our games, and you know, we're pretty solidly in the seven with a nice distribution, nice bell curve across six, eight, nine, and five. And then you can see collections like what's the most represented designer, the highest average ratings uh, in our group. That would be Jamie Stegmeyer, actually, with uh, the Splatter crew following right behind that, as well as Hisashi Hayashi. Publishers, the highest average ratings in our group go to Deep Thought Games. Well, that's a bunch of 18 Who would have thought about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Okazu brand being next. Well, that's all of Hisashi Hayashi's work. <laughs> so. No big surprise there. And followed by Flanks, which that's Twilight. Hmm. Twilight Struggle, Scythe. I don't know what that must be a distributor. I think that's um, that, yeah, must be distributor, different language, something. Right. But yeah, no, it's it's just amazing the level of information and all that stuff you can put from this. So if you have a game group and everybody kind of brings their own things to a third party, this is the perfect tool to kind of figure out what everybody wants of that. Or if you have a big gaming club, then you can figure out what everybody likes and what everybody has. Jake? It's awesome. Did you know yeah. that you and I are the worst matched in the game group ha, as far funny. as our likes and dislikes? So it'll compare you versus who you have the most comparable ratings to versus the least. Like uh, J-Mac and Vince are 92.4% similar in their ratings. And you're 92.4% similar with J-Mac. Yep. Whereas well, uh, it is funny because we're, we're, we're the least matched and we're an 87 point. Yeah, <laughs> so we're I still pretty much right on. We're still a B plus. I'll take that all day. Anyway, uh, I can't recommend this tool enough. Geekgroup.app. If people in your group use board game geeks and have their collections on there and rate things regularly and interplays, this is a really, really stunningly well created tool by Phil Cardi to manage your group and the group collection. It's awesome. And even if you just use it alone. Use it for that, too. You can really browse your collection in a very data science-y, easy-to-grok situation way versus BGG and just use that kind of as the back-end database for it. 
And the user interface design on this one is absolutely amazing. It's so beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah, please you check it out. Geekgroup.app. Now, looking through this pile of games caused both Jake and I to think about there's a bunch of games out there that aren't the old hotness that are really highly rated. And we thought we'd take a minute to talk about some of our favorite games that we would call them the old hotness. So yeah, <laughs> our, our topic for tonight are our top three games that were published more than 10 years ago. I do have a caveat here, though. These are not my favorite games that I've published in the last that yeah. are published greater than 10 years ago, because I, I would have just talked about all the splatter games and we've talked about them a lot. So I'm trying to cover some games that I maybe haven't talked about before that I love and have on my shelf and I'm always going to own. So let's call this some great games that were published 10 years ago or more. Wonderful. That sounds great. Why don't you start us off, Mark? Okay, I am going to lead us off with a game that I'm relatively new to. Um, I have just about every Uwe Rosenberg big box game on my shelf right now. The only exception being at the Gates of Yang at this point. And I'm a little bit new to this game, but La Havre is an unbelievably good game. That's Uwe Rosenberg's 2008 release, uh, published locally by Lookout Games. And I managed to pick this up last summer on sale from Level Up Games in St. Paul and have now played it several times. And boy, this has become an anytime, anyplace game for me, Jake. What do you think about Lahav? I love Lahav. So I've actually played it before we became friends. And I remember really liking it. And it's always been on my like radar, I think would be the best way to put it. It's just a wonderful game. The one thing I dislike about it is it is kind of hard and the game gets really well, it's not hard in a, in a gameplay standpoint, but it's hard to see all of the options for everybody's buildings out there. And it, I would imagine this game would really bog down with some AP players. So everybody builds these buildings that everybody can put their different action guy on. And there's just like no easy way to see all of them because there's just so many. It becomes a little worker placement game. And so sometimes it happened where I was like, oh, I didn't know that Tyler just built the best building for me and I didn't end up playing on it. But other than that, I think it's a wonderful game and it does not show any signs of age at all. It's incredibly fun. It's super replayable. Um, I wish you'd bring this more often. It's just a little long, too. And it's it's a really easy game to teach, actually, because your actions really you have two choices, really. You can either pick up some resources off the little Mancala resource distribution thing, or you can utilize the action on one of the buildings that either you have or somebody else have. If it's one of your buildings, you get to do it for free. If it's somebody else's buildings, you got to pay them some food or some resources or something like that in order to use their buildings. Right. And there's a card deck that you work through for the turns in the game. At the end of every trip through the Mancala, basically, you have to do like in every Uwe Rosenberg game, you got to feed people and the feeding amount gets larger as you progress through that deck. When the deck is done, so is the game. And whoever scores the most with their boats and their buildings is the winner. I think this game has amazing replayability because there's so many different buildings out there and every different building set changes the game in some way. It plays up to five, which is great, but I, I think you're right. It could go long. The nice part is, is each individual action is really short. Lay some stuff. It's pretty quick. What's also great is I think you hit the nail right in the head. And the first time we played with you, I remember your teach was a little long on this. And I might have been just because I'd played it before. So I was like, I know this already. You don't have to teach it. But now now that we've <laughs> actually played it and both have it fresh in our mind, I think you could teach a new group of these people in two minutes how to play. It's a super simple game to teach. Yeah, for because sure. Because then every single card that comes out, you explain the new rules to that card. Right. Right. As yes, they come exactly. out. And so... And so you can be like, oh, well, this game didn't seem that crazy. And then maybe they'll be like, well, I would have planned everything around this towards the end. But 
whatever. I mean, first time you play a game, maybe you shouldn't be playing to win. You should be playing to figure it out anyways. I love Lahav, though. And 100% I really agree. Like one of the challenges is that there's a lot of bits in this one. And if you spread out a lot of space using the bits, then you are going to have trouble seeing what other people have for their buildings. So would I've got a little uh, Plano tackle box thing that I got all my bits in, and that really condenses the game quite a bit. Right. Absolutely. I, I need to laser cut something for this. Well, why haven't you already? You should. I oh, know. and have you seen that they're doing new bits for it as well from oh, the Board Game Geek store? I have. Oh, they're I have. Bank. They're, they're going to get your money. They're going to yeah, take it all are. from you. Yep, because I love this game and I love those bits. So, Jake, what's your number three choice? Mine is a little different than our kind of normal fare, where Lahav is right in our wheelhouse. This one is kind of not. So I did not own the game, the original first printing of this game, but I thought I'd include it because I haven't had a chance to really talk about this game, and I think it's a wonderful one. I'm, of course, talking about Cash and Guns, released originally in 2005 by Ludovic Mablanc, name of the designer here. This is, without a doubt, my favorite party game. Have you played it, Mark? No, I have not. I've I've seen it being played. In fact, somebody was playing it Wednesday night at Fantasy Flight. It's always funny seeing people point foam guns at each other at Fantasy Flight. But right. no, I've never played this. Right. The background on this game is you are bank robbers who are just leaving uh, or in the middle of a heist. And there are eight different rooms that you're going to go into. But in every single room, there's a new display of what treasure is available for you at this point in time. And so... Everybody has a gun, as Mark mentioned, and you have eight bullet cards, five of them being blank click shots where you're just pretending you're just shooting blanks, and then three being real bullet shots where you're actually going to take eight. So what everybody does is they choose one of these cards, and then they point their gun in the air, and then whoever is the leader for that round goes three, two, one, and everybody points at somebody. Then people get to decide if they're going to jump out of the way and knock themselves over. What that will do is you won't be able to grab any of the middle treasure, but if somebody is going to actually shoot a real bullet at you, they won't damage you at all because three bullet hits and you're dead you're out of the game which is something i'll talk about in a bit and then after everybody does that you reveal what kind of cards you chose whether it's a blank or whatnot if the person you are pointing your gun at is jumped over and you have a bang and you actually shoot them nothing happens but if the person hasn't jumped over and you're pointing at them and you actually are really going to shoot them they get knocked over and take a wound and three wounds and you're dead so then all the people that haven't been shot or didn't jump over get to grab all of the treasure in the mental middle one at a time it is so fun to point guns at people. I have played this many times drinking with my friends. We've made it into a very fun little drinking game. It is just so fun. I'm so surprised you haven't played this because this is usually a Klopcon staple towards late at the night. No, I've never I've never seen that anybody in our group even owns this. So I've never been around it being pulled out. I've made kind of an active choice not to bring it to game nights because it plays eight wonderfully well and it's a little long for what it is it can take a little bit long which is no big deal if you're just playing drinking with friends and something but if you're there to game i don't know if i want to spend 45 minutes on this game or 30 minutes on it i'd probably rather do something else and so i just don't really bring it but it is so fun maybe i'll bring it maybe it'll, maybe it'll be a clopcon thing or something but the other points i wanted to make about this game is it comes with special player powers and those are dumb other people have already said this so i'm not making some earth shattering realization. I never play with those. And the other thing is I hate teaching this game to a group of people where I'm the only person that knows everybody there. So like if it's kind of a mixed group of a couple of different friend groups or something, I will die by the second room because every single person points at me because they're like, oh, Jake, Jake knows what he's doing. We can kill him. And then I'm out. I think you'd like this one, though, Mark, because it actually feels somewhat similar to Moneybags, um, which is an oink hmm. game that we both like. Kind of has the same premise where you're divvying up loot. 
this one just has a set collection kind of thing and has a little way that you can point and get people out, but it feels kind of similar and I think you'd actually like it. So Cash and Guns, it's a, it's, it's a fun game. I'd give it a 1A on the mogul scale. I got to get you to play it sometime. Yeah, I'm in. Fantastic. My number two choice has a high degree of silly to it as well. <laughs> this is the ultimate acid test for a person's OCD level. I'm referring to Vlada Chivadal's 2007 masterpiece published by Czech Games Edition called Galaxy Trucker. Galaxy Trucker is a real-time game where you have to assemble a spaceship out of plumbing parts. And you have to grab this and you have to put them together. You're, you're actually like a uh, plumbing trucker. And to save money, the company says, well, you actually have to build a ship out of the parts that you're transporting. By the way, when you get there, you're going to sell your ship for parts to actually pay for the distribution. And any parts that you don't arrive with come out of your pay. So <laughs> better make sure you get there with as many as you can. The problem is, is the second half of every other round is what I would call an obstacle course of disaster. So you build a ship, which everybody's as janky as hell. You go out against this obstacle course and like big chunk of your ships just get ripped off just one after the other. And whoever scores the best in that round often is the person that just happened to somehow manage to get luckier than everybody else. And then you go back and build another ship and do that again for three rounds. Man, it's big fun. Jake, do you like this game? I've never even seen it in person. Really? I know. Okay. (laughs) I know. I I, I think this is probably the same reason that I don't bring cash and guns to the game group. You probably don't bring this game to the game group. So I've always been aware of it since I started because it's kind of a classic in the kind of silly. This game's probably more fun than it is a game, but I've never actually had a chance to play it. I would like to, though. Pop quiz. What would our very uh, analytical OCD friend, Steven, what would his second favorite game be? This one. I think he likes games that he's not good at. (laughs) (laughs) I think so, too. But he went. No, he is great at it. Really? Interesting. Oh, he's really good at this game. Got it. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. You're not going to beat Steven at this game or Millennium Blades. Wow. Well, I did beat him at. No, Tyler beat him. Tyler beat him at Millennium Blades. The other analytic one of our group. Anyway, this game's a lot of fun. There's a million expansions out for it these days, and it's it's really become an evergreen classic that just about every group, provided that you at some level like playing a real-time game, will enjoy. That's Galaxy Trucker by Vlada Chavadal. Awesome. Um, Yeah, I'd like to play that one. Maybe bring it to Wednesday sometime. Maybe I'll try. My number two is another old game. I think it's actually the oldest game on this list, and it came out from 1999. I'm, of course, speaking of Lost City by Reiner Knizia published my copy at least by cosmos i really like two-player card games and i went through a phase of my life where i kept on trying to hunt down the right one for ann and i um where we'd only play it two and we'd just sit down and we'd drink some coffee on like a sunday morning and play these games we've ran into an issue and i've actually stopped this quest because we are not evenly matched at any of these games whatsoever <laughs> uh, I have found Jaipur. I have found Lost Cities. I have tried to do Control. Then I tried to do beyond that. I tried to do the one I talked about last week, which is Caper. So I am really good at Lost Cities and Anna will never beat me at Lost Cities. And Anna is wonderfully good at Jaipur. And I, no matter what I do, I not beat her. I've literally brought in a pad of paper and tried to like really try hard and I just can't do it. So anywho, sorry about that tangent, but let's talk about Lost Cities. It's a two player game where what you're doing is you're different explorers going on different quests and you need to get investors to try to get the most points. Like a lot of Kinesia games, it has a really awesome scoring mechanism that kind of uh, holds it all together. So there's five different suits in the game and all it is is functionally a card game. You are going to shuffle all those suits up and then you're going to deal them out. There's one to ten and three, I believe, investment cards for each suit. 
Then you deal them out. And on your turn, you're going to get some cards and you're going to play some cards. When you get a card, you can get it from the deck or you can draw anyone's discard pile. And then when you play a card, you can either discard a card or you can play it to the different quests. And the way that it scores is you take all of the numbers of cards that you've played on each quest that have to be played incrementally, increasing in value up, and you take that value and you subtract it by 20. And then you multiply that by however many investor cards that you're able to play down before you're able to get on there. And it's a really simple game. And there's a little bit of like trying to goad your partner into playing to something that you know you have all the big cards in. So they're going to lose a whole bunch of points because if they only have three points in a quest and they actually committed to it, they'll get minus 20. So they'll lose 17 per thing. It's just a really fun game. I like it a lot. I've tried to branch it out and play with other people besides Anna. And it's worked a little bit better because Anna just she can't get her head wrapped around it in the same way that I can't get my head wrapped around Jaipur. I know you're a big fan of this game, right, Mark? I have played this game a hundred times easily, both before I was married, I played it with my sister. It was actually one of the very first travel games I ever created. I actually made a miniature Lost Cities deck out of two identical decks of cards where I just sharpied in a fifth suit on the other one and used the jokers as investment cards and so forth. Or the face, I think we used the face cards as the investment cards and brought that along on some trips that we made long before I met Heather. And then since then, I've played this game a bunch of times with Heather and We love this game. The tension of, boy, the deck is running out. I still have a handful of stuff that I want to play to maximize my profits. Do I want to try to lengthen the game by not drawing off of that? Or do I want to choke the game so that the other person gets hosed out of dropping their cards? Oh, so many great decisions. This is one of my favorite games. Agreed. And it's so good for two. I absolutely understand why everybody loves this game and speaks about it so much. I would personally love a a cheap reprint of this game in a really small deck box with just cards. I don't know why the yeah. publisher would do that, but I would love the idea of your to-go game or if anybody does those decks of this deck is compatible with 18 different games or whatever, they should really try to make sure that you can do it for Lost Cities because it is a wonderful game. The board that comes with it, absolutely not necessary. I know, it's such a waste. It's the biggest waste <laughs> ever. I actually had this in my travel game case it's for a pretty. while and I, I, I would keep <laughs> it and set it up. What's also funny is I have the BGG expansion to this game where there's a sixth suit that you get to play oh weird. so i've played with that so usually when i end up playing with it i'll i'll include that one and then i just won't even use the baseboard anyways so it's just a dumb little thing it's an awesome game look for it if you're into two-player card games it is a classic it is lost cities and on our little mogul scale what would you give it mark i don't know if we'd agree or not you know um the rules are definitely a one it's really simple to explain this one and it's a 1b i would agree look at us we get along we should start a podcast together, Mark. We should do it. <laughs> that would be a great idea. You know, a uh, random thought, too. We need to try Lost City Rivals again. That's something I picked up at Gen Con last year. It's sort of the uh, Reiner Kinesia's follow-up to this. That's a multiplayer version that includes an auction mechanism, and we love auctions. We will have to try it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to try that again. I agree. And actually, I should just bring this as my two-player card game two things. I've been kind of infatuated with capers since and we talked about it in a previous episode, but Lost Cities, there's just something so simple and wonderful about it that it's it's a wonderful game. And I still can't believe it's nearly 20 years old. Does not feel 20 years old. It seems like something that came out yesterday. Lost Cities. It's a good one. Pick it up. So my last choice today is going to be one that I know for a fact you haven't played. In fact, I know for a fact nobody in our game in our current Wednesday night game group has played. 
but it's a game that I've played the stuffing out of with some of my other older, longer standing board game groups. We don't speak of them, Mark. Yes. We're your only group. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, I've talked about why I created D19Con so that I could kind of glue together some <laughs> of my uh, different game groups that I play with. The game I'm referring to is a game I have never owned, but so many of my friends own it that are not in this current game group that I actually never ended up buying a copy of it. And it's now super duper out of print. The game I'm talking about is Tribune Primus Inter Paris. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but we just call it Tribune. This is a two to five player game that was published back in 2007 by Carl Heinz Schmiel and published locally by Fantasy Flight Games. Nice. It's probably my favorite fantasy flight game by a pretty big margin, actually, I'd say. This is a game actually was on the shelf at the library at Fantasy Flight for a long time, and I've been meaning to go over and fish it off, and then it was gone. Yeah, and I, I don't know if they maintain that on like a BGG list or somewhere, but it seems kind of like a crapshoot sometimes. Every once in a while, they just pull them off, and it's like, well, how do you me- how do you measure if game's getting played or not, you know? Yeah, this game was quite heavily worn, though, too. It had seen a lot of love, and... Oh, got it. At that point in time, too, uh, reprints were going for north of $150. So, uh, oh, jeez. <laughs> not saying somebody ganked it, but I, I don't know. It may have just worn out and missing enough pieces. So, backstory on Tribune it is a nifty combination of a worker placement game and a set collection game. So, glue together two of those that, mechanisms that were very popular about that period of time. The idea was that you've got several different areas in Rome, and each one is a different, you know, you can take this card or take that card. There's some I split, you choose things that go on in some of those action areas. And the idea is that you assemble sets to try to take over dominance of some of the factions within Rome, like the tribunes or the senators. And each one of those factions, if you're the leader of that, gives you an extra power. Like you might have an extra guy if you're, you know, in one faction, or you might have, I don't know, the ability to draw extra cards or something like that. The other neat thing about it is is that there are several different missions that you can decide. Do you want to play a short-length game, a medium-length game, or a long-length game? We'll take that scenario out, and it'll define the win conditions for that. So you can really tailor the play experience depending on how much time you have and how deep the group wants to get into it. And it's such a fun game. I have now not played this in probably at least five years, and I need to borrow a copy of this from one of my friends and bring it to Wednesday night because this really is a great game. Oh, I don't know if I want you to play me a game that I can't find. I already have enough issues trying to find <laughs> 18xx games online. I don't want to add, an, add just like kind of midweight euro to that category. This one has to get a reprint because looking at it, I mean, Fantasy Flight has the license locally, or at least I'm assuming they still do. And it's overall, it's it's number 531 on Board Game Geek, So it's a very well thought of game. Not super highly rated, but anything inside the top 1000 is reprintable for sure. Yeah, so I'll have to try it. Yeah, that, that seems interesting. Good good random pick. I've never even heard of this game before. I'm frantically clicking it on BGG. I haven't even seen it either. I've mentioned it in passing a couple times, you know, with regards to the game library there. And I think one night I even went over and I just said, oh, I got the thing. I'm going to go. We're going to go play Tribune. And it was gone. <laughs> and I was like, interesting. Eh, never mind. We're going to play something else. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll have to try Tribune. What would you give it as a mogul scale? This is a extremely solid 3C. It's a midway euro up one side and down the other. So my last game that is old is one I'm currently playing, and it's one I've actually played a lot. It's my most played 18xx game. Um, I'm talking about a game that was printed in 2005 by Thomas Lehman and Deep Thought Games originally. My edition, again, is by GMT. I don't own one original edition of this game. Um, and I just love it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful 18xx game. So this is the first 
18xx game that we taught to the group. Um, and I remember while we were playing 1846, I said to you, Mark, okay, so you can issue shares, but I don't really know why anyone would do that. And it's been really interesting <laughs> playing this game so many times and using it, A, as a teaching game and B, just kind of as a game to play because I'm playing it online right now. And I am absolutely in love with this game. Um, <laughs> me and you often joke that our most favorite 18xx game is whatever one we just played. Um, and this one is definitely applying to that. But it is so cool to see all of the things that I thought were dumb about this game and realizing how wrong I am. Sure. When's the last time you played this game? And have you played it since we've, I don't know, realized what 18xx could become? No, I have not. And I own a copy of this, too. I have not played this one in at least a year. I barely remember it. I mean, it's, you know, I know there's some crazy things about it that are unusual for 18xx, and I can't remember what that is. And I know that there are some somewhat degenerate combos in there that you need to defend against, and I don't remember what those are. I'd love to play it again, just that been introduced to many, many, many other 18xx's in the meantime, and just haven't had a chance to play 1846 recently. Right. And so just for background on the listeners who probably haven't remembered us droning on about train games for too long, 18xx is a category of games kind of based on 1829, which is the original one that was set in England, but then they printed 1830, which is in the eastern seaboard kind of area to the uh, very easternmost part of the Midwest. Um, 1846 takes that kind of system and adds some more spice to it, but it's the region of the Midwest from like Ohio all the way over to Chicago, kind of that area. So what you are doing is your different investors investing in train companies that are going to run routes, run these trains, get the most money, whoever has the most money wins. But you are 100% right, Mark. This one is really weird and I completely forgot everything about it. So you can issue shares at like any point in time. You can issue any number of them as long as they are not more in the market than is what is held by players' hands in, in, in players' hands. So if four people have two shares apiece, you can issue up to eight shares or whatever, but there's only 10. So that was kind of a stupid example. But this game is so cutthroat and evil and fast just because of the small little things they put in there. And money's a lot tighter than I remember it being when we play. And I am just having the absolute best time playing it with some friends of the show. Thanks for uh, running with me, guys. I am in love with this game. We need to play it now that we know stuff because you are going to be exactly in the same position as me. We're like, oh, 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 oh. I started a second company in OR2. I had two companies nice. by OR2. It's so cool, Mark. <laughs> Yeah, that's bringing it on. I generally like I'm playing several 18xx games online right now, so I'm certainly getting my fill. But it's been a minute since I've played one in person. I mean, I think it's it's been several months since I've gotten an opportunity to play an 18xx game in person. Maybe 1846 because it's somewhat accessible and a lot of people who have played with our group know how to play it. It maybe should be the next one we do. Maybe not on a train Thursday, but maybe this is just a Wednesday thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, for sure. Um, the other thing I would say about 1846 is this is something that gets debated literally every other day. People should not get confused that the game that's the easiest to obtain is the easiest to teach. Yeah, especially if you're not used to GMT Styles rulebook as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this game comes up all the time as the 1846 a good teaching game, and it's not. There are much better teaching games than 1846. It just happens to be the most accessible. Well, and it's probably the most accessible strategy-wise for a new player. And let me rephrase that. It's not even the most accessible strategy wise. It's literally just the easiest to obtain. No, but they help get rid of some of the pitfalls in other 18xx games. So you're not going to be 
fluttering around in like the, the the waterfall auction or something along those lines and lose it in the first round. And they were just sitting there within a Well, OK, that's fair. And uh, it handholds a little bit because there's so many different tiles and you can lay a yellow and upgrade on your turn instead of just do one. So you can get places a little more quickly and not be bogged down. But that being said, there still is a lot of awesome mechanisms in it to make it so experienced players can really extract a lot of fun out of it. But I agree with you. We, as the Gaming Moguls, I think endorse 1889 as our teaching game, but that'll probably switch to 18 Chesapeake once we actually get our awesome copies whenever they end up getting delivered by All Aboard Games. Yeah, I don't think you can go wrong with either one of those as teaching games. So I know you and I are actually giving a uh, customized teaching gaming mogul session to a group of new 18xxers around 1889 coming up in a couple weeks and that's going to be a blast absolutely anywho so that was 1846 by deep thought games a wonderful game excellent so there's the old hotness for you those games for the most part should be easy to obtain with the exception being tribune (laughs) and uh, you know let's hope that thing actually gets reprinted sometime in the near future hopefully all right well we've been the gaming moguls i'm jake i'm mark Thanks for joining us tonight, and good night, everybody. Night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.